Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. If you're a Shark Tank fan or business junkie, check out the podcast Another Bite. Each week, Another Bite breaks down the biggest success stories and most disastrous failures to come out of Shark Tank. The hosts break down each company's pitch, analyze the deals that were or weren't made, and answer the million-dollar question, are they still a company? Whether you're an entrepreneur looking for tips or a Shark Tank fan that just wants to relive the drama, Another Bite's your deep dive into the world of Shark Tank. Just search for Another Bite in your favorite podcast app, like the one you're listening to right now. Hello there, fellow time travelers. Dearly beloved, great to have you with me as we travel through time and space together, trying to understand the past, the present and the future. What an ambition. Uh, We can't tell what the future holds for us, but what we can do is look back. We can look back into history in pursuit of lessons, wisdom, anything that might help us cope with the present. God knows we need help to cope with the present. Uh, And from, from that point, you can maybe look ahead a bit and maybe try and plot a course into the future. And that's what this podcast series is all about. If you'd like to support us and you aren't already, and the collateral benefit there is you get access to exclusive content every week, sign up to my patreon.com site. It's easy, just go to patreon.com, search for me by name, part with a bit of cash, join the family, and I'd love to see you there. Okay, that's it for the advert. Time now to strap into the time machine as we set off towards the next stop in my love letter to the world. Recorder, microphone. Action. Revolution is afoot, and feelings are running hot in Paris. Food shortages, inflation, rising taxes and rent hikes are stoking the flames. Fighting for fairness and equality, demanding the abolition of feudalism, and to make all equal before the law, it's all in play. But the mob is marching alongside, and before too long, terror sweeps the country. A moment in history that comes to define the politics of revolution the world over. Hi Neil. Last week we travelled with you to Southern Africa to witness a battle that was fought in 1879, but would come to change the course of your life over a hundred years later. Where are we this week? Morning, Paul. Yes, we're leaving Africa, the Battle of Isandlwana and the mighty Zulu warriors, and we're heading to France. It's 1789, a jumbling of those numbers previously mentioned, and we're in Paris as cries of revolution are ringing out across the city and the streets are running red with blood. This week we're in the heart of the storm as the mob drags a baker called Denis Francois through the streets to lynch him before a baying crowd. We are in France this week, Paul. You and I often say, either you say it or I say it, that this is one of my favourites, or this is a really good one, but but we would do that because we're biased. But this one, uh, it's partly because I think for the last few weeks... I've had a real feeling of synchronicity 
about what we're talking about from a moment in world history and what's happening in the present, which is what this series of podcasts is all about, obviously, but it has felt particularly acute the last few weeks, and this week is no different. The title is The Baker, The Mob, and The French Revolution, and the fact that I've been invoking the R word recently, and we're all aware at the moment, we'll not mention the names of the people in, in, involved, uh, but the mob is is busy hunting down individuals at the moment and seeing how much they can make them squeal. And so there's something there's something very apposite, basically, about this one. It begins, there's a date for this one, really, 21st of October, 1879. And obviously 1879 is the, is the year of of French Revolution. And on the on the twenty first of October, a baker by the name of Denis Francoise was in his shop, in his bakery, on the Rue de la Juivre in Paris, uh, when he was confronted by a mob. The mob turned up outside his his shop. It's October 1879. These were have gone down in history as the October days because it was a febrile atmosphere uh, in which well, anything was possible and many things that might previously have been thought impossible and unthinkable happened in those October days. The October of 1879, so that's three months after the storming of the Bastille, on the 14th of July, so that that moment, which is the the flash, the the, the spark, the ignition of the French Revolution, was the, was the storming of the Bastille. Well, some months have passed. It's a bit like you know, it's like phony war. You know, they, they talk about the phony war in the Second World War, in 1939-1940. War was declared, but it was difficult to tell exactly what what that war was going to look like. The October days were a bit like that. It was like tense. Everybody knew there was thunder in the air. There was electricity. There was there was a charge, but three years still would unfold before the guillotine, the guillotine, would appear on the uh, Place de Grève. It appeared the first time, actually, for the execution of a highwayman on the 25th of April, 1792. So we're still three years away from that, and everything, everyone associates the French Revolution with the time of the guillotine, which is the terror. You know, the tumbrils of the terror. The tumbrils were the, were the, the wagons that, that folk were flung on the back of to be taken through the streets to be dispatched, so they, they, they were yet to they were yet to get going. Uh, but and it, this is this is why this seems to me a moment, a moment in history, a moment in the story of the world, because Denny's his moments are numbered, with or without the advent of the terror. He's a grim portent of what lies ahead at this point. So it's October 1879. It's three months after the storming of the Bastille. And Denny suddenly the, the the mob appears outside, screaming people appear outside his shop. Now their principal spokesman is a woman, a hungry, poverty stricken woman. And she's shouting the odds at Denny and he's being accused. He's just being accused, basically. The the fingers are pointing at him. And the the the, the allegation is that he's been hoarding bread baking bread or, or acquiring the ingredients thereof and holding it back to bump up the price of bread. You, you know, because if, if you can keep a, a desirable commodity in short supply, people are prepared to pay more money for it. 
And so this is what he's accused of doing, or, or at the very least, in some nefarious way, they, the mob says he's been doing something to take advantage of the poor people, the poor, hungry people of Paris. To give you further context of, of the time, this October day, the 21st of October, 1879, it's two weeks, two weeks since another incident, which is when thousands of women had seized weapons from the city armory and they had marched on the, the palace of Versailles. Uh, that was the, it was on the 5th of October and they had gone to Versailles to make their protest where the king could hear it, Louis XVI. They knew he was there with his wife, with his kid, and they wanted him, you know, they wanted to go and confront him. So, you know, in the vicinity of the Palace of Versailles, they, they, they shouted the odds at, at the king. And the next day, the 6th of October, Louis returned. He'd packed up and come back to Paris with, with his family. And, and because they had provoked this, the mob, and I'm speaking about the mob as though it were some like, coherent thinking organism, which to some extent it was, but it was just that the, 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 the febrile atmosphere in Paris forced Louis to come back into the city. And that febrile atmosphere was further charged, or the mob was emboldened by the fact that, God, we got him to do it. You know, we went, we went there and we, we said our piece and, and he's come back. So it's like moves on a chessboard and the mob are thinking, oh, we, can, we can get the king up and, up and moving if we, if we want to. So that's the context. It's just three weeks since, since Louis has had, has had to come back into the city to face whatever, the inevitable. Uh, Denis Francois, the baker, you keep forgetting him in the, in the midst of all this because he's, he's just a moat, a speck of dust, really, in a much bigger picture. But he protests his innocence. And maybe he was. Maybe he was innocent. He certainly says, I have done nothing wrong. The mob doesn't care. The mob doesn't listen. And he's dragged to the Place de Grève, which is a square in the, in the city. And in the square, dominating the square, is the mayoral palace, the mayor's palace, which is known to all as the Hôtel de Ville, the Hotel de Ville, and that place, the Place de Grève, had for hundreds of years, by 1879, for hundreds of years before that, it had been a place of protest, because the French, the Parisians, have always been for taking to the streets. They did so before the revolution, and they've done so ever since. So the Place de Grève was all, had always been somewhere that people would congregate to sound off about whatever it was that was bothering them. And it, also, that square was also where people were publicly tortured and executed by the state, by the king. So it's a, it's a notorious place. And there, Dinny is strung up from a lamp post until he's all but lifeless. And then he's dropped to the ground and he's a head cut off with an axe. And his pregnant wife, his pregnant wife is alongside him. She's been dragged through the streets with him. And they, they hold up Dinny's severed head and push it into her face and she's made to kiss the lips of her husband's severed head. I mean, it's, as, it's as ugly a scene as, as you could possibly conjure in any nightmare. So that's the end of, of Denis. And even by the standards of the time, it, this is shocking. And the National Assembly, which is a kind of a, a, a governing body, declares martial law off the back of the lynching of Denis Francois the Baker. 
and it allows for, well, it gives the, the state power to disperse protest and indeed uh, to execute any protesters who won't call it quits and go away when ordered to do so. So that the lynching of Denis Francois is another step along the way. The fact that it's a baker that was the target, it's always, if you read into or if you just listen to the shorthand stuff about the French Revolution, you're invited to draw the conclusion that it was hunger that sparked the revolution, that the proletariat, the masses, the poor rose because they were, they were starving and they had been pushed beyond endurance. And it, and it certainly, food plays a part, it would. It's certainly true that the thousands that had stormed the Bastille, and hundreds of people died during the storming of the Bastille because the soldiers, you know, tried to hold it back. But apparently the people, they, they came for weapons. They knew that it's, you know, it's an armoury. They knew that there were guns, gunpowder and so on. So they came to get that because you need that if you're going to have a, a bloody revolution. But they also believed there was grain there. They believed that there were stores of hoarded food. So it's, it was also allegedly hunger and they need to satiate that hunger that, that brought people to the Bastilles. But, but hunger and, the, and wanting access to bread is always the kind of base note for explaining why the revolution kicked off when it did. And actually, when the protesters, when the women went to Versailles and Louis and, the, and his family returned in the aftermath, the emboldened uh, crowd, as they watched them coming back, ch- chanted, we have the baker, the baker's wife and the baker's son, we shall have bread. So they're actually calling King Louis and his queen and the child, the, the bakers. They're making them the source of, of provender. Also, Turgot, who was an advisor to Louis, he had said to him, Ne vous mêlez pas de pain. Do not meddle with bread. Don't mess with the bread. Do, you know, you can do certain things, but don't, don't mess with people's access to bread. And obviously there's the whole let them eat cake and all this kind of... Everyone thinks about the French Revolution in the context of access to bread. And it's also it's probably worth pointing out that bread in this context, when you think of French bread, everyone's kind of got an image of like the baguette, you know, the long, maybe the long French loaf, so-called, and yeah, the, with the fluffy white interior and the, you know, the hard crust. But the, the bread at this point in 1879 in Paris, for most people, didn't look like that at all. It was really hard... Like German, you know, black bread, that kind of very substantial stuff. So most people, most of the poor in France subsisted, relied upon for most of what was filling them up with really coarse loaves made from barley, not wheat, barley or or even millet. You know, the kind of bread that if you if you spent a lifetime consuming it, you know, you'd wear your teeth down to the gums. You know, it's, t- it's tough stuff. And for years before the revolution, there had been a series of poor harvests. So the people were short. They were going short of food. And at the same time, there was a rising population. So there were more hungry mouths. And it, all in all, increasingly unbearable pressure had been building up upon the poor. And if that wasn't enough, which it probably wasn't, that in itself would not have triggered it. But it was, it was inflamed by inflation. Prices were going up at the same time. The king was demanding more and more in the way of taxation. So people were losing even more of what little they could earn. And opportunist landlords were hiking rent. This perfect storm building 
you know, you push people eventually. If people have got nothing left to lose, they're very dangerous. So it wasn't just hunger, it was everything. Everything was just compiling and compounding to make lives miserable. And Louis had, had seen or had been advised that serious trouble was coming. And for the first time since 1614, he had summoned the Estates General. And the Estates General was a, a body of people, representatives of the church, the, the clergy, representatives of the nobility, and representatives of the common, the commoners, the poor, the poor people. So this is the this is the Estates General. It's like a representative sample of the population of Paris, and they all come together in hopes of finding some sort of solution. So they come together for the first time on the 5th of May, 1789. And in the summer thereafter, the Estates General renames itself, rebadges itself as the National Assembly. And if you remember, it was the National Assembly that in the aftermath of Denis Francois' lynching had declared martial law. So what had been the Estates General has become the National Assembly. And the National Assembly, in a reflection of the revolutionary mood, is declaring that it represents all Frenchmen equally rather than, as had always been the case, differentiating between the classes, which was what the Estates General had been all about. The National Assembly, they said, no, we are all, you know, égalité. We are all Frenchmen and, you know, everyone's voice counts the same. The National Assembly, such as it was, it did define the French Constitution. Remember, this is happening in the aftermath of the American Revolutionary War. You know, that, that's what inspired the French Revolution. So anyway, so the, the National Assembly puts together, in the manner of the founding fathers, if you like, they put together a constitution, a new constitution for France. And it, it brings an end to feudalism, which is that way in which people, you know, were kind of belonged to the land and were completely dominated by the nobility and, you know, negligible rights of any sort. It created representative government as we would understand it, as the Founding Fathers sought to do for the fledgling United States of America, where there's a separation of powers, so that you've got the executive and you've got the legislature and you've got the judiciary and they're supposed to operate independently and, and thereby assert checks and balances on everything that's happening. The French Constitution asserted that all men were equal before the law, and you can consider that to be all French women as well, but you know that's not the way it was worded. And it also took control of land that had previously been held by the church and was that was regarded as being iniquitous and, and unfair so that the National Assembly just claimed land as though it was going to administer the, the use and the ownership of that land on behalf of the people. And in this National Assembly, the king was, the king was there as well. You know, the king's part of it, you know, as the executive. And uh, those who were in favour of revolution in this group those who were who wanted revolution sat on the on the king's left the king's on the king's left hand and those who were opposed to revolution who wanted to maintain and retain monarchy and so they sat on the right and that action of choosing left and right is what has given us left wing and right wing to this day if you've ever wondered why you talk about people of a socialist bent being left and people of a of a conservative bent being right that's why because in the, in the national assembly they literally picked a side of the king if nothing else has persisted from from the national assembly it's the labeling of political views as being of the left and of the right 
most good ideas, they, you know, they start out well-intentioned, but the road to hell is paved with good intentions. And some of the, the efforts of the National Assembly and some of the changes they brought about and the Constitution as it was envisioned and imagined and drafted and, and sealed were good. But, but, and it's a big but, there was also brute cruelty. And there was the exercise of petty vengeance. This is the problem. When I've talked about, on social media, about revolution, I want change. And I want to find a, a different and a better and a cleaner and a more honest way of doing things. But I'm not interested in the, in the pitchforks and the flaming torches. That's the danger. Because if you, if you decide on a revolution, the mob gets emboldened. Because people think, under the guise of seeking change, I can get him. I never liked him. And I, I can, under the, and, and I'll call it revolution. <laughs> this is the terrible, terrible danger of, of revolution. And what unfolded eventually, as we all know, was the terror. During the time known as the terror, remember as the terror, well, the figure that's usually put on it's 30,000 dead in a year and a half. And within that, there were people that maybe had it coming, but God knows we've all got it coming. And maybe there were people who deserved what happened to them, but in amongst it all, tragically, were people who were the victims of the settling of old scores. The French Revolution, it reformed, it altered politics and the practice thereof for much of the world ever after. But there's just no denying that shot through it, tainting it from top to bottom, there was the exercised thirst for revenge. And in too many cases, as is always the case, revenge was taken on people who had simply been seen to be doing a wee bit better than their neighbours and had thereby inspired jealousy, envy, the green-eyed monster. And what happened to Denis-Francois the baker? He was one of them. You know, he had his own business, and he was doing pretty well, and he had maybe, you know, a few extra coins in his purse compared to his neighbours, and that was enough to make some people very jealous of him. You see it again, the Russian Revolution, 1917 and, and thereafter, the treatment of the people called the Kulaks. Kulaks were, um, well, middle class. It was people, the Kulaks were people who by whatever, hard work, maybe a bit of luck, you need a bit of luck, they had got a little bit ahead. Maybe they had a, a few head of cattle. Not wealthy by any stretch of the imagination, but just... They had just got themselves a little bit above some of the neighbours. Kulak was not the name they applied to themselves, as is so invariably the case. It really means it's descriptive of a clenched fist. A kulak, this is a kulak. And it meant people who were tight-fisted. You know, people who were mean. People who, who were hoarding money. The revolutionaries called open season on the kulaks. To motivate the mob, it was pretty much declared that the kulaks were bad. They had some stuff because all property is theft, and they had they had got stuff. And if they had stuff, they must have been they must have been going about it in some dishonest way. And the kulaks were transported to Siberia. They were murdered in their beds. They were just collateral damage as part of mo as part of driving, stoking the fires of revolution. And 
It's what invariably happens because revenge is too tempting for too many people. People who don't have what they want and they see others with what they want. As soon as the opportunity presents itself, they go in and help themselves. And as they say, revolutions generally devour their own children. That is also true. And the mob is hungry for vengeance, not just on the nobility, not just on the on the very rich, not just on the king, not just on the aristocrats. The mob is hungry for revenge on the neighbours. It's just a sad fact of human nature. So what happened to Denis Francois in October of 1789? It's representative of, of what happens when the mob get the bit between their teeth. And in the case of the French Revolution, in the case of the Russian Revolution, it's never about bread. A maelstrom of ruthless political manoeuvring and infighting sees the rise of an emperor, a military genius who forms a formidable fighting force, dominant on the land and determined to rule the waves as well. An implacable opponent stands in his way, a naval genius determined to secure the freedom of the seas, and the European dance of death begins. Next time in my love letter to the world... To help support this podcast and to get access to new and exclusive history and comment vodcasts every week, sign up to my Neil Oliver Patreon site. I'd love to see you there. Check out my shop for series merchandise, t-shirts, mugs, hoodies, the works. You'll find the details attached. My Instagram account with great daily updates is called Neil Oliver Love Letter. My YouTube channel is simply called The Neil Oliver Channel and it features new films every week. And to help build this podcast, please tell your friends about it. Get them listening and write a review to convince the online crowd to join us. For further reading about these moments in time, you could try my book. It's called The Story of the World in 100 Moments, and it's published by the mighty trans world. Neil Oliver's Love Letter to the World is produced by Neil Oliver and Paul Ratcliffe for Catnip Inc. The music's composed by Milo McKinnon. The social media and YouTube producer is Oscar CFR. Additional research is by Evie, Lucien, Archie and Teddy. The finance is by Catherine and Trudy. Post-production is by Squared Studios. And the graphics are by Paul Plowman. Thanks for listening. This has been a Catnip Inc. Podcasts production. If you're a Shark Tank fan or business junkie, check out the podcast Another Bite. Each week, Another Bite breaks down the biggest success stories and most disastrous failures to come out of Shark Tank. The hosts break down each company's pitch, analyze the deals that were or weren't made, and answer the million-dollar question, are they still a company? Whether you're an entrepreneur looking for tips or a Shark Tank fan that just wants to relive the drama, Another Bite's your deep dive into the world of Shark Tank. Just search for Another Bite in your favorite podcast app, like the one you're listening to right now.